Uh, many of you know the troubling story that has become known internationally as the Stephen Salida case. At the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, Dr. Salida's firing from a tenured position in the American Indian Studies program just weeks before the beginning of the semester has touched a nerve with people interested in how the question of Palestine is addressed or not, as the case may be, in the US, and also with those interested in questions of academic freedom and new administrative rhetoric about civility. Brooklyn College political scientist Corey Robin has argued that the Salida case reveals the, quote, Palestinian exception to the First Amendment, as speech critical of Israeli violence in Gaza was deemed uncivil. And Illinois argued that Steve Salida couldn't appropriately teach all students, despite the fact that he has built a distinguished record as the author of six books and a respected teacher at Virginia Tech University. The case also raises questions about the role of donors in influencing university policy on hiring matters. Yet Dr. Salida's case is not merely about the ways that civility masks dominant power or about the violation of academic freedom, although it is surely about both of those things. Often lost in the coverage of Dr. Salida's case is the topic of his scholarship, which compares native and indigenous sovereignty in the Americas with similar questions of indigeneity in Palestine, not in over-celebratory comparisons, but through deep consideration of the possibilities and limits of indigeneity as a category of analysis. It wasn't only that Dr. Salida's tweets were viewed as beyond the pale to a few influential donors at Illinois. It's also that his hire as a Palestinian American in American Indian studies, as well as his work on the questions of Palestinian decolonization touched two proverbial third rails in American public discourse. On the one hand, he forced a reconsideration of the question of Palestine as a question that revolves around decolonization. And his hire implicitly called for a consideration of US colonialism over native indigenous peoples as an ongoing project that should be considered within the moral and political horizon of Palestinian solidarity. Yet a public too often committed to viewing Palestinians as Goliaths and not the Israelis as Goliaths, or too often committed to viewing native and indigenous peoples as what native scholar Jody Bird terms the ontological prior of modern society, these two groups could not fathom Dr. Salida's hiring in American Indian studies, nor his criticism of Israeli violence during its recent offensive in Gaza. So please help me welcome Dr. Stephen Salida. Can everybody hear me okay in the back? I don't want to yell too much. Um, I don't want to get myself in trouble. So, but I'm going to project my voice. I don't, don't, please don't go around tweeting. You know, uh, Salida's is yelling at us. I, I am in, in, in only the most technical sense of, of the term. Um, thank you for coming. Um, it's a tremendous honor to be here. And I want to thank uh, you know, Professor Lubin in particular you know, for helping organize this and his intellectual solidarity and, and for his friendship and, uh, and all the other folks um, here at UNM who have, who have helped make this happen. Um, let me start with a few words about the, the genesis of, of this talk. Um, it actually serves as an early introduction of, of my next book, which, um, which will analyze the many ways in which Palestine plays a role in American Indian studies. Its presence in the field is both fruitful and controversial, and whatever one makes of it, um, undeniably visible. 
I focus on American Indian studies rather than the broader indigenous studies, not as an overt political decision, but because my project is mainly limited to North American nations. When I examine other areas of the world, you know, Hawaii, the, the Caribbean, Algeria, South Africa, etc., I, 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 I try to offer the appropriate nomenclature, though I can't think of any taxonomical terms that aren't somehow contested. With the term internationalism, I emphasize communalism and dialogue across borders, both natural and geopolitical, not the nationalism of the nation state, but of the nation itself as composed of heterogeneous communities functioning as self-identified collectives attached to particular land bases. Internationalism is a way to compare nationalisms, to put them into conversation, but also to examine how the invention and evolution of national identities necessarily rely on international dialectics. An interesting conversation that has developed recently in American Indian Studies is the role of Palestine in the field. And this conversation forms the nucleus of this presentation. I'm not merely interested in elucidating the processes by which Palestine has become a topic of interest in American Indian studies, although I will do that, but also in exploring the implications of incorporating Palestine into the discipline and the comparative possibilities that exist when it happens. So I've dealt with the topic before. Um, my first book, uh, The Holy Land in Transit, was published in 2006, but I compiled the majority of the research for it in the early 2000s. In the book, I look at some of the ways uh, colonial discourses in North America and Palestine arise from the same moral and philosophical narratives of settlement, examining how modern Palestinian and native literatures incorporate those discourses. So back then, there was good source material some of which I had to mine from old documents. But the comparison of Palestine and Native America was pretty undeveloped. Ward Churchill had done some comparative analysis, as had Norman Finkelstein. Neither was especially strong. Robert Warrior had long before published his classic essay, Canaanites, Cowboys, and Indians. And the American Indian movement had released numerous statements in support of Palestinian nationhood. So I wasn't bereft of materials, but over the past four or five years, comparison of natives and Palestinians has reached a level of both sophistication and complexity I never could have imagined in 2006. Before I sort out what's happening in these comparisons, let, let me take a look at some of the reasons comparison of natives and Palestinians has increased in recent years. I believe that there are three primary factors, each with its own set of contradictions and subtexts. So number one, the proliferation of blogs and social media where people are able to argue, inform, share, and theorize, however superficially. These platforms lend themselves to all sorts of comparison, usually for the sake of rhetorical persuasion. For instance, one of my Facebook friends is compiling the many instances that people say, Palestine is worse than this or that moment of black oppression. South African apartheid, for instance, or Los Angeles during the early 90s. The same thing happens with Palestinians and natives, in that a fair number of Palestine supporters draw parallels, some excellent and others cringe-inducing, to North American indigenes. Number two, Palestine scholars and activists have 
and I say Palestine scholars and activists, not necessarily Palestinian scholars and activists. So this would include, um, you know, would include a, a good number of Native American studies scholars. Well, they've increasingly been using the language of indigeneity and geocultural relationships to describe the political, economic, and legal position of Palestinians. The appropriation of such language is a rhetorical act meant to situate, rightly in my opinion, Palestine in a specific framework of colonial history rather than as an exceptional set of events brought forth by ahistorical circumstances. The use of such language identifies a perceived socio-historical familiarity with other dispossessed communities. In this case, North American indigenes. The declaration that Palestinians aren't merely native or original, but indigenous to the land colonized by Israel, not a completely new phenomenon, but one certainly growing in frequency, alters a number of crucial factors of Palestinian strategies of decolonization. In particular, the relationship of human rights organizations with international law, the comparative possibilities in fields such as ethnic and indigenous studies, and both intellectual and physical deployment of Palestinian nationalism into transnational spaces. Number three, the most important reason for this proliferation is the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, or BDS for short. Boycott of Israeli institutions or of the state itself has a long, albeit uneven, history in the Arab world. When I discuss BDS, I have in mind a specific call for cultural and academic boycott issued by nearly 200 organizations representing Palestinian civil society. Thus, BDS is not a governmental or corporate initiative, but neither is it spontaneous or organic, for it arises from a long history of decolonial advocacy on an international scale. I can say that BDS is an initiative of Palestinian civil society and has seen rapid growth within the past five years. What does BDS have to do with American Indian studies? Lots, actually. The short version is that many Native scholars and activists have taken up the cause of BDS and in so doing have broadened the conditions of studying the decolonization of North America and deepened what it means to undertake the types of intellectual and political activities one might perform in the service of Palestinian liberation. Other reasons for the increase in comparison of natives and Palestinians include the ascension of Palestine as a test case of one's decolonial slash leftist slash scholarly credibility, the success of the Palestinian national movement in convincing greater numbers of people around the world to support or even identify with its cause, and this is aided by increased Israeli belligerence and its dissemination in alternative media. The growth of Arab American studies, a field in which Palestine is central, in the academic spaces of ethnic studies where it's encountered American Indian and indigenous studies, and the increased emphasis in American Indian and indigenous studies on international and comparative methodologies, which has led numerous scholars from the Pacific North America and South America to Palestine. So this project uh, isn't necessarily a part two of the Holy Land in transit. Uh, rather, I conceptualize it as a synthesis of important comparative trends in American Indian studies and subsequently an analysis of the many roles Palestine plays in the development of ethics, innovations, and debates in American Indian studies with a particular interest 
in theories of decolonization. Now, given my work and the topic of this presentation, what I'm about to say might come as a surprise. I don't like comparing cultures. I'm a huge fan of comparative scholarship and believe deeply in the benefit of intercommunal approaches for theory, activism, service, and pedagogy. But there are problems inherent to comparing cultural practice rather than examining contexts of intellectual and historical interchange across the restrictive categories of academic labor and the physical constraints of geopolitical borders. I'm wary of moves that even inadvertently compartmentalize the complexities of formal and informal cultural practice into comprehensible phenomena sorted within the taxonomies of Western epistemology. To make my point simpler, one could spend plenty of time showing how, say, Palestinian and Ojibwe or Cherokee and Maori cultures are similar. And culture itself is an intangible and unsettled term. But such a move risks evoking the dredges of an antiquated cultural anthropology. I would suggest then that it's a mistake to orient comparative scholarship around the ceremonial or the spiritual and look instead at sets of historicized encounters made in the past or that have the potential to happen in the future. American Indian Studies, for instance, has recently discovered Palestine at an institutional level. In what ways does the presence of Palestine in the field shape and define its limits and possibilities? What are the terms and frameworks for useful comparative scholarship? Are there material politics at stake in comparing North America and Palestine? A good way to explore these questions is to articulate the conditions in which Native scholars have taken up the issue of Palestine. The, first possibilities, the possibilities of comparison are tremendously rich and go beyond mere similarity. First, similarity is a weak premise for comparison. Thousands of things are similar without warranting scholarly study. Also, those who compare natives and Palestinians aspire to relationships that go beyond theoretical innovation. Such scholars emphasize the practices of decolonization. Although North America was settled by different national groups, Colonization of the so-called New World has been infused with a particular biblical narrative of salvation, redemption, and religious destiny. Settlers assumed the role of Joshua crossing the River Jordan into Palestine, where God commanded them to exterminate the indigenous populations and establish for themselves a beatific nation on a land of milk and honey, underused and underappreciated by the natives. The English, the Puritans most specifically, were the most avid proponents of this view. But it's fair to say the French and the Spanish weren't quite secular. From its earliest moments, the United States has been beholden to a holy land ethos, articulated in various ways throughout the enterprise of European settlement. The emergence of Zionism in the late 19th century evoked a dialectic with the project of American settlement that remains today apparent in military aid, security cooperation, and foreign policy. However, it's actually in the complex discursive and psychological spaces of ideology that the two states, Israel and the United States, most closely align. The relationship is built through particular articulations of belonging that codify national identity into the mythologies of colonial domination and military conquest. Both Israel and the United States 
are relentlessly exceptional. And they are exceptional, ironically, only together. Through identification and assessment of those connections, scholars in American Indian studies have recently made important advances in intercommunal analysis. For instance, there's been much reflection on the relationship of Zionism with global systems of imperialism, militarization, plutocracy, and the neoliberal economies that undercut indigenous self-determination in numerous parts of the world. American support for Israel tells us much about the breadth of actors and actions involved in the continued occupation of native lands in North America. Israel's conduct in the world, beyond its mistreatment of Palestinians, affects the health and economies of indigenous communities worldwide, Indian country among them. Two interesting things come out of these advances in intercommunal analysis. The first is the transformation of native peoples from complex political subjects into metaphorical objects of decolonial credibility. <laughs> to put it more simply, Indians have become actors in the rhetorical battlegrounds of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Zionists say, Jews are like the Indians. Palestinians say, nonsense, we are. Both Zionists and anti-Zionists recognize in Indians a sort of moral authority on the subject of dispossession with which they seek to be associated. I should pause for a moment to note that I find numerous problems with the formulation. I'm, I'm identifying it as a phenomenon, which is quite common these days, ra rather than endorsing it. My main problem with these appeals to native authority as a way to accrue decolonial legitimacy is simple. Neither Zionists nor anti-Zionists need to be correct for anything to change in our understanding of Palestine. Not to mention our understanding of North America, which gets completely trivialized and dehistoricized in this type of situation. Indeed, the historical dispossession of Indians has often resembled, and in some instances has more than resembled, the mistreatment of Jews, particularly in Spain on the eve of Columbus's voyage, and in Eastern Europe after the Industrial Revolution. But these realities don't preclude Palestinian dispossession from also resembling that of Indians. In fact, Palestinian dispossession also often res re resembles historical Jewish dispossession. That the, current, that the Palestinians' current oppressors self-identify as Jewish doesn't in any way diminish this simple fact of history. Thus, the crude comparisons made for the sake of rhetorical expediency stop short of analyzing the historical, economic, and discursive forces that inform the American-Israeli alliance and bind natives and Palestinians to the same anti-colonial taxonomy. The second thing that comes out of these advances in intercommunal analysis is what we learn about the practice of American Indian studies as an academic enterprise that exists beyond the corridors of academe. When I, what I mean by an academic enterprise beyond the corridors of academe is the element of the field, which may not always be consistent, but is always present, that compels its participants to practice communal engagement and pursue social justice. That's an old-fashioned term, so you might interchange it with human rights, sovereignty, self-determination, liberation, you know, and, and, and the whole list continues. But the point is to do something. Right? to do something that, that, that happens um, outside merely the, the, the boardroom or the classroom. 
So at a most basic level, you could observe that interest in Palestine among native scholars is unsurprising. The field, after all, has long offered critique of American empire and imperialism and produced comparative analyses of Indians with other racial and religious minorities. Why then wouldn't at least some attention be directed toward an expansionist Israel, not only funded by the United States, but claiming to be a modern incarnation and proud conserver of American manifest destiny. Israel, remember, is often conceptualized by American elites and rank-and-file Christians alike, not merely as a worthy recipient of U.S. patronage, but as an indivisible component of American cultural identity. Yet there might be more to the growing importance of Palestine to American Indian studies. I'd suggest that interest in Palestine among native and indigenous scholars represents at least in part a realization of the field's ideals of decolonial advocacy. And I don't raise this point to romanticize American Indian studies or to totalize it. Rather, I suggest that any field with a commitment to the repatriation of community, the communities it studies will eventually become transnational because the powers against which the dispossessed fight are interrelated. And because of a variety of phenomena, many of which I pointed to earlier, transnationalism in American Indian studies quickly moved to incorporate Palestine. Palestine, then, is not extraneous to American Indian studies. Rather, it informs our understanding of the geopolitical complexities of Indian communities as well as the transnational, intercommunal possibilities of the field. So the comparison of the US and Israel is particularly germane around the concept of values. And values, of course, are unstable things. Unreliable, too, because they're invested with so many explicit and implicit demands and coercions. In this case, as Hegel's passage indicates, there's a long-standing discourse of shared values between the US and Israel that mutually implicates natives and Palestinians as pre-modern and unworthy of liberation. But what are those values? Democracy, modernity, industriousness, freedom, nobility, humanity, compassion, Natives and Palestinians not only lack these exemplary qualities, but they actively seek to undermine them. American values arise not only from an expansionist capitalism, but also from the redemptive mythologies of Israeli colonization, a fact that has led numerous folks in American Indian studies to question the divinity of Zionism's heroic narratives and to explore how the current situation of Palestinians under military occupation lends understanding to native reinterpretations of those American values. While the inclusion of Palestine in American Indian studies tells us much about the shifting possibilities of Palestine studies, particularly its uneasy relationship with Middle East studies, it also illuminates or reinforces a particular set of commitments in AIS, American Indian studies, I speak of the material politics of decolonization and their role in the formation of certain liberationist ethics to which many practitioners of American Indian and indigenous studies adhere. So the analysis of Palestine in AIS forces us to continue exploring the cultures and geographies of indigeneity. Here the issue of Palestine proves instructive. 
in the culture wars of Israel-Palestine, there's much chatter about the matter of indigeneity. Um, the, the first talk that, that I gave, if I can take a quick uh, detour, um, was, was at Northwestern University. And a gentleman uh, uh, was, uh, during the Q&A, he was, he, was uh, he was quite animated. And he claims that he had driven all the way from, from, from Cleveland. And you know, I, I don't know if that was like true, that he had driven all the way to Cleveland, just asking that question, or if it was true only in the most technical sense, that he had driven from Cleveland and was staying like two weeks in Chicago, right, and happened to turn up. But, but either way, right, you know, but he, he, um, he was very passionate about the, my, uh, my use of, of the term indigeneity in the context of, of Palestinians. And, and, and he wanted to argue that, no, that the Jews are indigenous and, and you're nuts, right? Um, and the second part was very important to him, right? But uh, the, 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 the Palestinians are but, uh, you know, uh, uh, residue, more or less, of, of the 7th century Arab conquest, right? So uh, th these, these are things that are argued all the time, and, 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 and I get into these sorts of, of conversations and, and debates frequently, and, and I'm not so interested in, in trying to work out who's right or wrong in those debates, right? There are all kinds of problems with them and, and, and the terms under which they're conducted, but just to point out the fact that a claim to indigeneity as, as a political category, as an identity, right, as a, as a historical experience, et cetera, is very, very important to the various uh, participants in, in the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict itself and to the cultural wars that sort of surround it. When Zionists and Palestinians lay claim to indigeneity, see, they're not merely being technical, right? The term indigeneity is infused with numerous connotations about access, belonging, biology, culture, jurisdiction, and identity. Indigeneity isn't merely a moral entitlement, but a legal and political category. To access that category is to be positioned as steward and legatee of a particular territory. Thus, the appropriation of the language of Indians inherently recognizes Indians as the rightful indigenes of North America, a recognition made infrequently by politicians and commentators, and simultaneously appropriates natives into an extraneous debate whose conduct inva invalidates their agency. I say the debate invalidates Indian agency because rarely does it visualize natives as living communities engaged in the work of repatriation or even in the work of survival. When a person says Jews are the Indians of the Holy Land, the statement affixes Indians into a specific historical posture that renders them rhetorical, but not legal or contemporaneous claimants against colonization. And this is an, an example of, 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 of one of those sorts of, of, of claims of indigeneity. This is so because the claim is fundamentally statist, referencing a particular history to support an argument of the present. The referenced history does not make it into the present. The argument it informs already occupies that space, so it entraps Indians into the past. Further evidence that this sort of move invalidates Indian agency is available in the language of the rhetoric itself. One need only read major forums of debate, the New York Times, Huffington Post, uh, Slate, etc., even social media such as this Twitter and, and Facebook, to notice the extent to which visions of the American past bear upon the matter of Palestine. 
Because it remains locked in the past, Indian dispossession is frequently used to rationalize Palestinian dispossession. Unlike the Jews as Indians argument, this one acknowledges Indian disenfranchisement, again, only in the past, but forestalls any possibility of repatriation. Yet, exactly like the Jews as Indians argument, the goal is to justify the original sins of Zionism and the current settlement of the West Bank. The time, this time the Palestinians become Indians and both communities end up consigned to unfortunate but inevitable antiquity overwhelmed by the progress of a linear history. This is a powerful example of how colonial ethos allows people to own history without being responsible for it. The common wisdom and common sense of this argument arise from a colonial logic of divine possession and democratic entitlement whose values, the hegemony of its assumptions, render conquest a permanent feature of modern American consciousness. Zionism has adopted this consciousness in its desire to normalize garrison settlement and military occupation. For them, colonization is permanent, even as it happens, in many ways before it's even taken place. For the ideologies of modernity underlying expansionist worldviews emphasize the progress of a distinct state culture with a neoliberal economy and a militarized infrastructure. The idea of returning land to Indians is crazy. Indeed, as crazy as the idea of allowing Palestinians to remain on theirs. The Indian interventions into these debates are of special interest. Much of the scholarly and political opposition to Zionism moves beyond moral displeasure at the behavior of Israel and its American sponsor, concerning itself instead with broader questions of power and meaning. What does it mean to confront a state whose presence, ipso facto, ensures legal and territorial dominance of its indigenous communities and its legitimization as a permanent arbiter of its subjects' destinies. In the interrelated narratives of colonial permanence in the US and Israel, we have a profound set of circumstances within which to explore this question. Answering the question from a perspective that doesn't take it as a point of fact that the United States and Israel are permanent isn't merely a move to delegitimize the state, but to imagine a future outside of the notion that displacement must necessarily be permanent simply because it succeeded. I would emphasize that despite an abundance of American-Israeli interactions, military, economic, diplomatic, cultural, historical, religious, the relationship of the two states is most profound at a level of discourse and ideology. In fact, a manifest Holy Land ethos has played an enormous role in the development of American society, both physically and philosophically. The ethos predates the creation of Israel, but presupposes it. In this sense, the ancient Israel of the Old Testament was realized not through modern Zionism, but in the settlement of North America. Stephen Newcomb explores these phenomena in his book, Pagans in the Promised Land. He notes, and I'm quoting from Newcomb, when dominating forms of reasoning, categorization, found in the Old Testament narrative are unconsciously used to reason about American Indians, Indian lands metaphorically become, from the viewpoint of the United States, the promised land of the chosen people of the United States, end quote. 
Newcomb's analysis is valuable, though I, I would question the extent to which reasoning about American Indians as biblical Canaanites is unconscious. I think it's quite conscious. The teleology of North America as a new promised land is obvious in the early days of European settlement, but even now the interventions, uh, the inventions of America as a metaphorical Israel with Indians as a romanticized but ungodly presence remains common, quite consciously so. These discursive geographies have traveled continuously between North America and Palestine. In turn, the geographies of American Indian and indigenous studies have transcended the restrictions inherent to the nation state the quintessential entity of colonization. In so doing, the field challenges the probity of the nation state as a governing authority and as a progenitor of social organization. As Duane Champagne notes in the introduction to a comparative collection co-edited with Palestinian Smail Abu Saad, examining the future of indigenous peoples, and here I quote, native struggles within nation state systems are not simply efforts to gain inclusion or access to citizenship. Native peoples wish to preserve land, economic subsistence and means, and political and cultural autonomy. In many cases, nation states often find the demands of native communities threatening, at odds with national policies of integration and assimilation. So this passage illuminates one of the central features of intercommunal scholarship, its insistence on transnational dialogue, not only extraneous of, but in opposition to the physical and legal parameters of the nation state. Many Westerners might recognize this ethic as anarchism, but uh, I think anarchism is, is, is less interesting than, than what you could call indigenism, which I think is, 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 is the, the, the movement that's, um, that's relevant here. Let's turn then, uh, as, as I promised earlier, to, uh, to uh, BDS as, as, as a site of the type of internationalism I'm, I'm trying to explore here. Um, I think BDS has brought brought tremendous interchange among Native and Palestinian scholars, activists, so-called cultural workers. Natives are well represented um, on both the, the organizing and governing board of, of US ACBI. Um, that's the, the, uh, the United States uh, Academic Cultural and Boycott of, of Israel. It's kind of the, the US branch of, of the BDS movement. And uh, the endorsers of BDS include dozens of indigenous peoples from across the globe. More germane is the proactive role indigenous peoples have assumed on behalf of the issue to the point that the topic of Palestine has come into debate in indigenous scholarly and activist communities. What does it mean for indigenous peoples to debate Palestine? There are many possible answers, but I submit that they generally debate Palestine as a sort of metonymy of their reactions to North American colonization, right, or New Zealand colonization, or Australian or South African colonization, or whatever the case may be. Uh, put more simply, while Palestine stands on its own as an international issue, as do all sites of conflict and oppression, it nevertheless intensifies one's commitment to decolonization, particularly so for Native and Indigenous scholars engaged in the work of liberating their own communities from a type of garrison settlement reinvented and practiced with brute reminiscence of the American past by Israel right now in Palestine. Indigenous peoples haven't merely latched on to BDS, but have played a central role 
informing its ideas, its tactics and strategies, and crafting its narratives. The experiences of North American colonization have been seminal in developing more sophisticated understandings of Israeli colonial practices and Palestinian modes of resistance and nation building. In turn, the analysis of Palestine by indigenous writers has been seminal in more strongly comprehending American imperialist impulses and iniquitous economic policies, especially the oft-overlooked matter of current, not merely historical, colonial practices here in North America. As Julia Goodfox explains, as indigenous peoples, we can supplement our local and tribal self-determination activity by setting aside just a few hours to locate and work through an international political or human rights organization that promotes informed solidarity and intelligent mutual support with the Palestinians. In doing so, we can bring to a halt the U.S. and Israel's attempt to recreate Indian country in the occupied territories. That's the end quote. Similarly, dozens of Palestinian organizations released a statement supporting the Idle No More movement in Canada. The statement reads in part, we recognize the deep connections and similarities between the experiences of our peoples. Settler colonialism, destruction and exploitation of our land and resources, denial of our identity and rights, genocide and attempted genocide, the struggle of indigenous and native peoples in Canada and the United States has long been known to the Palestinian people. Reflecting our common history as peoples and nations subject to ethnic cleansing at the hands of the very same forces of European colonization. So of interest in, in, in the two passages, that by the, uh, the, the Palestinian Solidarity Group and by Good Fox, um, is their insistence on identifying the practices of colonialism in the present and a profession that working across boundaries increases the odds of mutual liberation. The latter point is both an ethical and a strategic proposition, one that does, does more than merely recognize shared historical circumstances. It also recognizes the coalescence of power in this age of militarized neoliberalism across the borders of nation states. Indeed, the conduct and composition of today's nation state are fundamentally globalized around military, economic, and technological alliances that subordinate indigenous communities across all continents. Any effective decolonization must take those alliances into account. Simply put, it might be hyperbolic to say that all indigenous peoples will have to be liberated simultaneously, but there's no doubt that a discrete power structure of which the U.S. and Israel are primary stewards and beneficiaries maintains their dispossession. Indigenous struggles for liberation exist at the axis of what it means to contest empire, militarism, and economic injustice. The actions and ideas of today's indigenous scholars and activists highlight the importance of transnational theory and analysis, an orientation that I've been calling internationalism, which encompasses both the ideological and the material. <coughs> internationalism encourages and assesses the play of decolonial narratives across cultures and colonial borders. So I divide the term with a slash to reflect not just the political philosophical and ethical dialogue intimated by the prefix inter, 
but also to separate nationalism from the prefix while keeping the two halves connected in such a way that they create more possibilities in juxtaposition. Internationalism expresses the desire for scholarship to explore broader patterns of discourse and power in our analysis of specific communities and a commitment to the project of nation building through deep engagement with decolonial paradigms. In closing, let me say two things. First, uh, the, 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 the term that most often gets, uh, that gets sort of associated with, with the types of things that, 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 I'm, you know, that I'm exploring and a lot of other people have, have been doing for quite a while is, is intersectionality. And um, I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that intersectionality um, you know, has, has, has failed by this point in, in its usage, but um, it's all over the place. Um, and, and to me, at this point, it's used in too many ways. and, and means means too many different things um, you know for me to, to or for a lot of people I think to, to get an accurate grasp on it but one thing that, that often gets left out of, of intersectional analysis right is, is indigenous peoples right and that's you know indigenous peoples right especially here in North America get left out of so many modes of, of leftist theorization and and with with um, internationalism it's an attempt anyway um, you know I don't know if it's a meager attempt or if it'll prove to be a useful attempt but it's a way of, of looking at, at comparative work at looking at sets of issues that are important to the global left but in a way that that privileges both the voices right and the presences of, of indigenous communities of native communities here in the United States particularly right uh, these these are communities that always get lost and I don't see possibilities for producing a sustainably useful critique, right, of American injustice if that critique completely overlooks, right, not only the dispossession of natives but the continued colonization of, of, of Indian country and the economies that, that inform it. Um, and so I want to offer just a, a few thoughts um, about the ethics of performing internationalist scholarship. Um, in many ways, right, Palestine has become a test case of one's bona fides in American studies, ethnic studies, and other areas of inquiry. Likewise, in political and community organi organizations beyond academe. Right, to be opposed to, say, you know, the Iraq War while simultaneously supporting Israel ensures, at least among a considerable demographic, a loss or weakening of credibility. Anti-Zionism as a test case of one's trustworthiness represents the ascension of Palestine into the consciousness of the political and academic left, and more important, the worldwide collective of indigenous scholars challenging the structures and mores of academic convention. This ascension of Palestine arises from the recognition, always evident but now common, that Israel isn't merely an ally or client of the United States, but a profound component of its imperial practice. To support Israel is to support US empire. Thus, other professions of resistance to US empire come into conflict with their own values in the presence of Zionism. Any political or methodological commitment as a litmus test is problematic. Those inherent problems notwithstanding, the juxtaposition of natives and Palestinians represents a deterritorialization of traditional disciplinary areas. 
In many ways, it makes more sense for Palestine studies and indigenous studies to be in conversation than Palestine studies and Middle East studies, as Middle East studies encompasses vast geographies in which liberation of Palestine is but a specialized subset and has traditionally accommodated various incarnations of Zionism as well as institutional acceptance of Israel in its current ethnocentric form as a permanent reality. For scholars serious about better comprehending Palestine's present and working to ensure its future, American Indian Studies offers more groundbreaking and germane critique than do the Cold War era area studies. In Palestine, American Indian Studies participants can access a view of American history as it has been reinvented in the present, wherein the residue of conquest continues in North America through plutocratic governance and functions in Palestine through the old-fashioned use of soldiers, tanks, tear gas, guns, grenades, and armed settlers, a violent continuation of the American legacy of Holy Land myth-making and ostensible reclamation. Questions arise about the conduct and modalities of intercommunal work, and without doubt those questions will need to be addressed and re readdressed as internationalism continues to influence American Indian and indigenous studies. In my mind, the starting point of internationalist methodologies in both research and political organizing must be sincere commitment to solidarity to use a very quaint term, right? And a term that itself is in uh, much contest. <laughs> Solidarity, the way I define it, isn't appropriation. It doesn't come with the expectation of reciprocity. It isn't recorded on ledgers. Solidarity is performed in the interest of better human relationships and for a world that allows human societies to be organized around justice rather than profit. It happens with the communities with whom we are in contact on behalf of the many we have never met. This ethic, I humbly suggest, is precisely why Palestine has become important to American Indian studies. Without Palestine, after all, North America never would have been colonized, at least not in the fashion of its conquest. And without that conquest, Israel might have been but a fleeting historical experiment, a new republic of Ararat, or state of Aleppo. Natives and Palestinians, then, have much to discuss. The first order of business is the acknowledgement that both peoples must, of geopolitical necessity, be liberated together, and that our scholarship should be an asset toward that goal, and not a reflection of state power. Thank you, and I'm happy to take questions or comments.
Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll try my best too. Um, so many of the uh, so many of the, the the traditional area studies come out of uh, Cold War funding, right? Uh, including some say uh, American studies, although its origins might be a little bit more radical than often given credit for. But if you look at Middle East studies, right, and it's it's a field that that has a has a Long, it has a long history of, 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 of brilliant uh, scholarship and, and brilliant work, don't get me wrong, but it also has a long history of, of relationships with, uh, with uh, American governmental entities, with, um, with the CIA particularly, right? Uh, uh, the State Department funded Soviet studies, then, you know, uh, there are entire groups uh, sort of devoted to, um, devoted to uh, turning Middle East studies into uh, a, a simple subset of of uh, American overseas interests, right? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if those forces are how much steam they're going to get, but it's deeply implicated. Like a lot of the the classic area studies, um, Latin American studies, um, you know, uh, uh, Soviet studies, um, you know, uh, uh, South Asian studies, Middle East studies, et cetera, et cetera. They're 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 deeply involved with um, a sort of State Department vision of 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 realpolitik and of education for the sake of of effective management of those areas, if that makes any sense, right? And so I'm 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 not I'm not saying that those area studies needn't exist. Uh, you know, a lot of fantastic people would be out of work if that were the case, right? And you know, and we have to deal we have to deal with. Uh, you know, almost every society that, that I'm aware of has to deal with, with these sorts of interventions from on high, right, in, into the processes of, of scholarship and disciplinary formation. But we also ought to be wary of just how much those fields can accomplish with the types of restrictions that exist around them historically and contemporaneously. This is not, again, or I hope I'm not inadvertently or otherwise romanticizing uh, this, this sort of nascent uh, Palestine studies or, or indigenous studies, right? Because these, these are fields that, that uh, have their own difficulties to deal with. But one difference I see in the way that these, these, these fields uh, you know, um, emerged and continue to emerge is American Indian studies particularly, um, and I think the same is largely true of African American studies, emerged out of, out of uh, grassroots movements, right? Um, they're sometimes implicated and have in the past at times been implicated in, in the processes of, of, of um, American state power, but at the same time, these are fields in which the notion of disinterest in the communities one studies is, is completely anathema, right? These are fields in which uh, the idea of not only um, identifying the architectures of state power, but uh, working to dismantle right, state power um, um, is an important component, not only the scholarship we do, but of the intellectual labor that we engage in. Um, and I like that I, I, I'm, I gravitate towards the spaces in academe and that sort of challenge and take apart some of those old-fashioned scholarly conventions. And you know what I'm talking about, the notion that 
that scholars are, are like, uh, you know, like, I don't know, nature photographers, right? Uh, they, don't have, they don't have nature shows anymore, really. Like, even, even National Geographic has, like, gone full-on, uh, you know, uh, uh, stupid reality programming, right? But if you ever, if you, ever uh, you know, uh, catch a, a nature program, and, 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 and some of them are just glorious, you know that the ethic, right, is that the camera person never intervenes in what he or she captures. So if, if this, this awful things are happening, you know, to the animals that, that are being God documented, right, they, 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 they do not intervene. So uh, if one animal is devouring another animal, they let it happen and, and they document it. And that's kind of the, uh, the, the scholarly ethics so many of us uh, were inculcated into in graduate school, that we're not a part of the, the communities that we study. We document them, right? objectively, and we don't intervene. And there was very little understanding of the very simple reality that as soon as you undertake to study a community, right, you've already automatically intervened, right, and you already have an influence and an effect on that community, and you already are implicated, whether you want to be or not, right? And so, I, you know, I like the idea of sort of moving away from, from these conventions into ownership of the fact that we intervene and that we make these interventions and thinking through ways that those interventions can be most ethical and also useful to the communities in, in, in which we're engaged. Um, you know, I have, uh, I have, uh, I have uh, maternal origins in, 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 in Palestine. And to me, when, when I work on scholarship that, that has something to do with Palestine, it's always with an eye towards, right, what might possibly contribute, even if in minute ways, even if only hypothetical ways, what might contribute to, to a narrative, right, that's going to help life improve for the next generation of Palestinians, and then even more for the generation after that. And, and that's certainly the case, of course, with working with um, indigenous communities in, in, in North America and elsewhere. And so it, it, maybe it's not necessarily a rejection of, of the traditional ethos of area studies, or the, the traditional structures, I should say, of area studies itself, but the traditional ethos of academe in which uh, area studies uh, uh, were developed and nurtured. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Thanks for talking to me. Sure. What are, given what you just said about the ethical and political narrative of doing this kind of work, um, there's clearly, uh, I don't have to say it, but there's a lot of personal, professional, I mean, there's a lot of stake, personally and professionally. And so, I mean, you know, you, you really are an example of that, for sure. So, I mean, how do you do that kind of work with so much at stake? I mean, there's a lot of young starting a Right. Okay. Is that okay? Thank you. And um, well, 
both both of them are terrific questions and and I'm like vowing uh, uh, in, in my own mind uh, uh, not to not to go on 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 uh, long uh, boring tangents um, you know so so tell me if if, if I start doing that but um, I, I I think there are different ways that we can be engaged in 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 academe I mean. I've been working for a little while now with, uh, you know, with U.S. Acme and with, with BDS, and I was, uh, I was pretty vocal, um, you know, around the time of the ASA resolution, you know, before it saying that, that this should happen and then afterwards justifying why it was a good thing that, that it happened. And, um, you know, I, I think that that had, uh, that gave me a type of, 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 of visibility that, Put bluntly, isn't necessary to do good work in 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 academe, right? Uh, it's a type of commitment to a certain form of public activism that I was comfortable with and that I wanted to do. But uh, one needn't necessarily make herself or or himself, uh, especially public, right, to uh, practice uh, a strong academic ethics, right? It exists in the way that you know you mentor your graduate students, right. Uh, in the way that you nurture your undergraduate students, the way that you treat your colleagues, right? The way that you, uh, the way that you, you try to live professionally a, a certain type of ethics that's going to help create community in these professional spaces where we labor. Now, if you want to talk about uh, broader issues of, the, you know, the scholar as sort of a public activist in some way, then. Um, I appreciate that, uh, appreciate as in understand, recognize that, uh, you know, sort of what happened to me in the University of Illinois, um, you know, it's been really public. And I think one of the reasons that it's been really public is that just the egregiousness of the U of I's decision, the timing of it, just the sheer stupidity of its rationale, right? Uh, but I don't think that there's anything particularly I exceptional about it. See. These are questions that you raise, uh, the really good questions about, you know, uh, sort of power coming down on us. Uh, you know, African-American scholars have been dealing with that since the moment that they set foot in, in academe. Indigenous scholars and students have been dealing with that since the, the moment they set foot in academe. In fact, the conventions of academic self-governance in lots of ways um, have always been hostile to deviant bodies and deviant minds, right? Uh, whether that deviance is based on culture or skin color or political commitment or, or whatever the case may be, it's always been a hostile environment, right? Um, it's always been an environment that, that's rewarded, uh, that's rewarded, uh, you know, I guess, uh, rewarded uh, affinities for state power, right? Uh, and you can think about the ways that, that even Terms like free speech and, and academic freedom function. Um, you know, last January, uh, this last January, when that uh, Arctic whatever the hell came down and made half the country. I don't know if it made New Mexico miserable, but uh, <laughs> it certainly made uh, everybody else miserable. Was it called the Arctic vortex, the polar vortex? Right? You know, it was like, you know, below, below whatever. You know, definitely below zero in uh, in Champaign Urbana and. Phyllis Wise, and she's of Asian background, Chinese background specifically, she decided to hold classes and the students got pissed off. I don't know if you, you heard the story, but they unleashed a torrent of racist and sexist invective 
towards her and she dutifully the next day or the day after, sometime shortly thereafter, released a statement saying we affirm the speech rights of, of our students and that's that. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with, with that decision. That, you know, she, as the subject of the racism and sexism, you know, I confer to her the right to respond any way that, that she wants to respond. All right, uh, That was her deal. But you think about the way that it's so easy to affirm the right of the KKK to march in Skokie I, and Fred Phelps and, and the Westboro Baptist Church to, to protest this and that. In fact, affirming their rights to do these things right, is a fundamental aspect of, of, of the American mythology, right? Uh, right? The, 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 the American liberal myth right? of, of open-mindedness, et cetera. But the moment that you quit engaging in, in these uh, token shows of open-mindedness right, towards those uh, liberal multicultural mythologies and start challenging the nitty-gritty of state power, it changes. Right? It changes. And academic freedom and free speech aren't so accommodating. That's always been a reality. That continues to be a reality. So in terms of you know, how graduate students and young scholars, or hell, I was tenured, or even uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, experienced scholars can, uh, you know, can, 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 can deal with those possibilities, uh, I always say that, 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 uh, that, that engagement uh, it happens on an interpersonal level and it happens in, in, in a public way and it needn't be both. It's, it's up to, to individuals. But uh, I, I do believe that, that we change things when we behave ethically in our professional lives, as tacky as that sounds. And I do believe that, uh, that if my situation has taught us anything, uh, it's, it's not that... Uh, that the state and its, uh, and its uh, operatives can, can screw us over. It's that, it's that the moment that the state uh, and its operatives try to screw us over, that they're going to face an extraordinary backlash, and the individual who is affected is going to have a, a, a tremendous, uh, incalculable amount of, of, of community support. Right, and that we, we go through it together, and that we're in it together as a community, and we practice a certain form of, of decolonization based on this model of, of standing together and being together. Um, well, it's in terms of what's at stake for, for AIS um, scholars, um, I'll give a short answer since I already went on about seven tangents. Uh, you know, I, I, can't, I can't imagine for them taking on anything, be it Palestine or, you know, uh, uh, you know Burma or anything else, right, that, that would not put them, right, as, as indigenous uh, human beings, right, and as indigenous scholars, right, in, in any more of an of, uh, uh, antagonistic position with, uh, with the state. You know, I think it's, it's kind of a been there, done that, uh, learning how to deal with it sort of thing for, for American Indian studies. And I don't think that it should be overlooked that what happened to me uh, at, at, at U of I happened in an American Indian studies program, um, one that already had uh, something of a, I don't even know the right word, uh, but uh, uh, the administration didn't love that, that, that program so much, even though it, it was one of the best in the world. Right, and it's filled with uh, incredible human beings, incredible human beings, and and fantastic scholars. Right, it's just one of the the, the best collections of, of 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 folks that 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 you could ever come across. But they've also been engaged in anti-chief activism, 
right? And, and I don't know what the hell it is about Illinois, really, but those, the folks, a lot of the folks in Illinois are more attached to the Chief than, than even the Redskins fans are, 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 are attached to that hideous logo of theirs. I mean, it's, it's totemic, and it's profound, and it's angry, and, and it's everywhere. And they, they, that department constantly brings up these inconveniences to the university, to the community, um, you know, to, to the state. And not only the inconveniences of Chief Illiniwek, but the inconveniences of, of you know, the land-grant university um, existing on indigenous territory, the inconvenience of the depopulation of the, the native communities of what's now Illinois, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think in my case, uh, it's, it's not just um, American Indian studies taking on Palestine and getting further dinged. I think it's a, a, a case of, of American Indian studies getting dinged simultaneous to, to, to Palestine in ways where you, you can't, at least in this situation, separate the two. Yes, sir. <laughs> so many leftist and um, a man named Harry Dinnings, who was a dean at the University of Chicago, was brought in to be uh, president of the college, and specifically to clear it up. So when I got here in 1963, Harry Dinnings was still there, but there were no leftist faculty. Um, in the 60s, because of our involvement in the war in Indochina, where we Oh, I, I agree completely. Yeah, I agree completely, and and probably will continue to. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, so uh, this question is kind of coming back to I think um, the, the 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 argument of the talk. One of the things I'm thinking about, and in this context, and I, I do Chicano studies, is uh, and I'm spending some time thinking about Reyes Lopez Tijerina's autobiography, the original one in Spanish. And one of the arguments he makes in that text uh, is he looks to Israel, uh, and Israel at the time in the 70s, so this is the 70s, is using, and I know you know well know, is using a sort of post-colonial discourse. Mm -hmm. And what he looks to for this kind of creation of the Indo-Hispano identity mm -hmm. as a model is not Palestine, but Israel. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has been brought to my attention as I've been talking about that with some people in the hallways, and I had read it years ago, but Vine Deloria, Mm -hmm. Also, in mm -hmm. the 70s, is positing uh, Israel, not mm -hmm. Palestine, is a model. So I'm wondering what you have to, in uh, thinking about uh, what you were saying at the talk, there's these interesting moments 
uh, in the past were these people who are widely recognized as threats to the state and somewhat radical uh, threats to the state, specifically in the relationship of Tikhanina, one of the four horsemen of the Chicano movement, mm -hmm. uh, who were looking to Israel and not Palestine. Right, right. Yeah, that's... Uh but that's 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 a good point, and and as jotting notes as as you were speaking, and um you know uh Vine Deloria did it. Vine Deloria was quite taken uh you know by 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 the Exodus narrative, right? Um and it's in my opinion it's it's I mean it's quite a it's it's quite an attractive story, you know uh, people enslaved, right? Uh, people enslaved are, are sort of given. Uh, something of, of, of a godly mandate and through their cleverness and their hard work and their strength and their courage and their, their bravery, right? They, they escape their, their enslavement and are rewarded with, with, a, you know, with, a, with a prosperous land, right? A, a place to build a, a new life, a place where, where Pharaoh doesn't oversee them, right? And, uh, and it is a wonderful story up until the point where God tells Joshua to, to commit genocide against the, the Canaanites and, and, and the Amalekites and, and the other uh, tribes who, who are already in the land. But it's a story that's had tons of, of sway, I think, of, of liberation theology and, and, and its, its, its uh, Latin American incarnation. Um, I think of, of Martin Luther King, you know, uh, he, he was deeply moved by that story. Uh, Marcus Garvey, right, uh, you know, uh, uh, had a profound sympathy for, for, for Zionism, um, you know, so, I, I don't, on a political level, um, you know, I, I, I disagree with those sorts of connections, but I try to step back and, and look at it as historical phenomena in which uh, the Palestinian narrative, right, hasn't been made legible to a lot of people. And the Exodus narrative, right, the biblical narrative of, 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 of Hebrew salvation is, is, is so attractive, sort of as a, as a right, as a, I guess as, as a metaphor, or, or even as an episteme, right? That that it, it, it informs a type of uh, it informs a type of striving, right? Uh, uh, towards freedom, it informs a type of, of struggle. Um, that's beginning to change, you know, uh, uh, rapidly in recent years. In Native Studies, uh, you know, Warrior's article, Canaanites, Cowboys, and Indians, has been hugely influential. And if you haven't read it, I mean, it's all over the internet. You can Google it. Uh, you know. Uh, Google warrior Canaanites cowboys and Indians you you know there's there's not like a million hits on that you'll, you'll get Robert's uh, article right it's just, but uh you know and, and he sort of he argues in it that that liberation theology is inappropriate right for for a native vision of, of freedom because natives should be identifying with the Canaanites right the ones who are already on the land right the ones who who God uh, uh, commanded slaughtered right and and it's a, it's an interesting sort of inversion and what, what it tells me, it tells me it's lots of things. I mean, we could probably go on about this subject for, for a really, really long time. One, it tells me just how invisible the Holy Land tribes are to the story. Right? Just how, uh, just how uh, suppressed the genocides that God commands are. Right? You, you, you just don't hear about that part, right? Uh, it's, it's not there. It's, it's, it's part of the biblical story, but it's not necessarily part of the biblical narrative, right? It's not necessarily part of our understanding of that narrative. And it also speaks to the way in which um, 
Palestinians, themselves modern Palestinians, have, have been uh, not, not only suffered, but have been, been silenced in the, the, the corresponding mythologies of, of modern Zionism as a, as a liberatory reclamation project. And I can't just say, you know, uh, I think it's unfair to them and, and to the gravity of the situation just to say that, oh, Garvey and King and Deloria, et cetera, et cetera, they just didn't know. I, mean, I don't know whether they knew or didn't know, right? But, but, but it tells us that they found uh, sort of very powerful foundational stories in this particular reclamation narrative, but it relies again on our notion of, of Jews as being indigenous. And I'm not particularly interested in, in arguing that question, right? Uh, it's, it's too complicated to me, and, and I don't know that, that it does an adequate job of sort of informing people's stakes in modern political claims. But, uh, but these are spaces, intellectual spaces, inside the United States, right, wherein the Holy Land imagery, right, and the mainstream sort of variation of the biblical story are so inculcated into the very uh, identity of, of the nation, right, that one has to seek out the Canaanites and one has to seek out the Palestinians, right? And that to me tells me more than anything about the way that, that a particular narrative has been raised, not only to, to make sense of, of the Holy Land and the Middle East, but also to make sense of, of, of the founding and the expansion of the United States. Ma'am, did you want to? Mm-hmm. And like you could look at the Jews as being indigenous to Palestine or Canaan or the Palestinians, and also you could say that there were Jews living in Palestine who were Jewish Palestinians. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so the issue is so difficult to define for me of mm-hmm. what you mean by indigenous, and is the question really about indigeneity or about human rights? Okay. Um, right. No, that's that's a good question. To me, uh in my opinion, it should largely be about uh, not just human rights, but about um, international laws, about um, about uh, histories of, of of colonization and ethnic cleansing, about uh, military occupation, about about uh, creating uh, creating legal systems and societies in which. Uh, one group of people is not privileged over another group of people based on, on nothing so much as, as, as biology, right? Uh, what, what, what identity they were born into and can lay claim to. The question of indigeneity to me is, is, is fascinating but complicated in ways that, that don't necessarily, um, um, that, that aren't necessarily helpful. Here's the thing. Are we talking about uh, indigenous in, in context of biology? Are we talking about it in context of culture? Are we talking about it in context of, of geopol- geographical claims? Or are we talking about it? What context are we talking about? Because indigeneity can exist in, in all kinds of different ways. Are we talking about it when it comes to biology? All right, when it comes to biology, and it shouldn't really be about biology, right? But if people want to get strictly technical about genealogical claims to the land, all right, I would say that, that uh, there's plenty of evidence 
plenty of evidence to suggest that the ancient Jewish communities, right, of, of ancient Israel are the modern-day Palestinians. I'm the ancient Jew, all right? I'm being dead serious, all right? I'm being dead serious. But, but that, to me, is not a claim on which we, we, can, we can make sense of a modern geopolitical <laughs> conflict right, based on settler colonization, right? Well, all I'm doing is sort of inverting a kind of totemic claim that a lot of Zionists make that, look, you know, you read the Bible stories, all right, and these people are my ancestors. I am a direct descendant from them. Therefore, right, I, who was born in, 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 uh, in the suburbs, right, uh, and, 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 and have never been to the Middle East in my life and whose ancestors, direct ancestors anyway, come from, from Germany and Poland, I have more claim to this landscape than you, right, who can trace your family back their generations, right? That's why I find problems with, uh, with invoking a, a, a sort of what you could call a biological mythology, right? And Palestinians and Jews are both implicated in those biological mythologies. They inform the discourses of the conflict, right? But they don't do much in my mind to, to clarify, right, the morality and legality of, of the conflict, which is quite simple. One group of people went uh, ethnically cleansed, another group of people is currently occupying them militarily and has a completely racist and inequitable legal system, right? And the solution to that problem is, is to make the, the legal system equitable and fair, right, and, and, and to share the land and to acknowledge that everybody has a stake there now, all right? But the questions of indigeneity are, are, are interesting to me intellectually, all right, as what they tell us about people's relationship with this land and with this conflict, right? And they, the, the indigeneity tells us that, uh, that people feel invested in the, in the Holy Land, right, as an idea, and in the Israel-Palestine conflict in ways that go beyond mere uh, political identification, right? That they carry with them uh, an atavistic sense of history, and that they carry with them an atavistic sense of, of destiny, and they carry with them also uh, 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 you know, something of a charge of fulfillment, that there's a story that needs to be fulfilled, right? A, a history that needs to be recreated in order for, for this, this world to, to continue to make sense. And I would say that, that uh, the categories of the categories of indigeneity, as they are, are raised in the context of the modern Israel-Palestine conflict, tell us a lot more about how people view their political claims in the present, right? Much more, or their political interests in the present, much more than it tells us anything about their relationship with history. All right, people are people are are, are dealing in, in in mythologies. And by the way, the same thing happens in North America all the time. They find Kennewick man, right, and then they decide, shit, Europeans were here. Do you know what I mean? And so we white people are indigenous because these bones tell. Do you see what I'm saying? There's no place in the world where there's a contestation where people aren't arguing, right, over artifacts or stories or DNA tests or some such nonsense, right, about who really ought to have rights in the present. So it's just invoking the, the mythologies of the past in order to make uh, uh, present political claims. And as far as the present political claims of the Palestinians goes, it's really not in dispute by anybody, no matter how many Bibles they pick up. You know? um, and I, I think we need to. Yeah, uh, so th thank, please help thank you, everybody. Thanks for having me.